You guys can tell that Zach preached last week because, you know, yeah, I don't like it when high schoolers are taller than me. But anyway, you guys having a good, good Sunday morning? How many of y'all are glad you came to church this morning? I am so glad. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here with our church family. Uh, we are continuing in our series, finishing it up today, uh, about spiritual warfare, the four tactics of spiritual warfare. And today we're talking about part four, which is demoralization. Demoralization is what Satan tries to get us to believe that God has forsaken you, that he's done with you, that he's left you, that, that he, you're all on your own. God has forsaken you. If he can get you to believe that, then he can do whatever he wants. And that is why this is, we have to understand this. We have to speak about it. We have to teach about it. We have to reveal it because this is what's going on in the lives of so many people. Uh, the main thing today, Satan's fourth tactic, is to isolate you from your commander-in-chief. Now, remember, this is wartime. One of the, one of the most uh, uh, devastating things that can happen in wartime is to eliminate communications. If Red Dawn happened... Uh, today, uh, the first thing you would realize is that this thing doesn't work anymore. They would jam communications, cell phone towers, cut telephone wires if they still exist. Uh, they, they would uh, blow up radio stations, whatever they can do to stop communication. It is a vital tactic in warfare, and that is exactly what Satan does with us. Isolated units in the field that are not receiving direction from their commander-in-chief, from the, from the generals, from the, those in authority, are very vulnerable. And so um, that is what is going on. If you don't think that your communication with God is a target, then you haven't been around for very long. Um, how many of you all, let's see a show of hands, confession time, you don't have to raise your hands because every hand would be up, have made a strong proclamation, this year I am going to spend an hour in prayer a day, or I'm going to spend 30 minutes in prayer, or I'm going to pray every day. How long does that last? Okay, let me tell you about my prayer time, okay? This is my prayer time. I will be at peace. I will be ready. I will be focused. And the second I say, dear Lord, you know what happens? Song lyrics from a song from the 80s pops into my head. I start singing Duran Duran or Def Leppard or something. Then all of a sudden, all these people that desperately need to hear from their pastor just come flooding into my mind. And I mean, these, things, these people were not even on my mind 10 seconds ago. And then all of a sudden, every task I have to do, this needs to be, needs to, the, the car needs to be fixed. Uh, this person needs to be contacted, everything. And within 30 seconds, I am completely distracted. Now, I know I'm the only one that deals with that, correct? I'm the only one? Well, what if that was not a coincidence? What if that right there was a well-constructed strategy by your enemy to jam communication with your commander-in-chief? What if we get so discouraged in our prayer life because those things happen that we just stop. I would imagine many of us have made big promises of getting together with God in prayer every day, and by two weeks, we're not even thinking of it anymore. What an effective strategy. What an incredibly effective strategy. Because, because if he can stop communication, 
that he can demoralize us into thinking that God has forsaken us. It's a very, very brilliant strategy. And uh, soon after you, you stop praying, you start hearing these words. See if any of these sound familiar. It's over. No point in continuing communication with God. Uh, God's just going to do what God's going to do. No point in asking him for anything because you just get your hopes up and they'll just be dashed again. If God really cared, he would fill in the blank. How many, how many of you all have heard those things constantly? Absolutely. That is the fourth tactic of Satan to demoralize you, to get you to believe that God has forsaken you so that you will cut off communication and then he's got you. Now, the book of 1 Peter was written to Christians undergoing very hard times. Uh, persecution, arrest, imprisonment, death, you name it, that was all going on. They were definitely demoralized, feeling that God had forsaken them because they were, the more faithful they were, the more persecution they got. And so Peter, the apostle, writes this letter to, that, that is just phenomenal to those Christians telling them to, to, to stay faithful. And to the Christians who are believing the lie that God had forsaken, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. I want to read this, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Verse 5, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace, uh, all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now I want everyone to focus in on this one verse. Number, verse 8 and 9, sorry, two verses. Be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world <clears throat> is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So there are six commands to fight demoralization that he gives us here. Okay, there's six, five characteristics of a church or a Christian that is, that is demoralized. The first thing is this. We're told this, to watch over each other. Number one, we're told to watch over each other. In, in verses one through four, to the elders among you, I appeal. And we're supposed to watch over each other. The first thing about demoralized churches and Christians, they have no example to follow. The examples are gone. <clears throat> if if uh, that, that is a, a church or a, or a Christian, it's very easy to get demoralized when you have no example to follow. And the examples, the elders in the church or in your life have, 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 are either morally compromised or they're full of drama and they're full of fighting. They're focusing on all of the wrong things. There are no examples to follow. All right? First thing Peter states is to the leaders in the church and in the families. We have to get ourselves right. Now, pastors, elders, community group leaders, et cetera, come to mind, don't they? And those are our leaders. Yeah? But remember Cattle's philosophy. Remember at this church. 
We always talk about getting ourselves right first, then our homes, then our church. So everyone in here is a leader. Everyone. You are at least leading your own life. So let's bring this, this verse back to ourselves, right? Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. In other words, shepherd yourself first. Watch over yourself. Make sure that you are taking care of yourself, making sure that you are where you need to be. Make sure that your, your own faith, your own heart is pure before God. Before we can talk to anyone else, we have to make sure we get our own houses in order, starting with ourselves, is what he's saying, right? We must always start with the one person we can control and influence, ourselves, then we look at our homes, the adults in the room, the adults in the room. How are we doing in our own homes? Are we shepherding our own homes? Are we encouraging? Are we preaching the truth? Are we getting discipleship done? Are we in our own homes? I don't even care what's going out outside right now. In our own homes, are we leading well? Are our homes places where God would, would say, yes, there's my kingdom. That's where my will is being done. That is where, that's the first step to combating demoralization is getting ourselves right with God, then getting our homes right with God. And then third, then we move to the church. We're called to watch over each other, to be the community that God has called us to be. That's, where, that, that's what we need to be in here. Right? We need to stop whatever is not of God, whatever is not bringing the kingdom, we need to stop. And we need to focus down on that. And we need leaders to be examples in how to fight the tactics of the enemy. That's what we need. Uh, I was reading one of my favorite books, Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. I'm a history geek. Who's a history geek? In, any history geeks in here? Yep. I love it, especially military history. I love it. And I was reading this. It's one of my favorite books. I underlined it and, and marked it because I thought, thought it had tremendous, tremendous uh, relevance for us in the church. <clears throat> There's a story from D-Day uh, in 1944, World War II. Uh, this this, this uh, a squad of American, uh, uh, um, American soldiers was cut off from its unit, cut off from, from everything. They were taking fire from, from a house. There, there were a bunch of Germans in, the, in a farmhouse that were just laying waste to them. They were, they, they were just kind of hunkered down, and they didn't know what to do. Young soldiers, inexperienced. And he writes this, Stephen Ambrose writes this, Brigadier General Norman Dutch Coda, Assistant Division Commander of the 29th, came upon this uh, group of infantry pinned down by some Germans who were in a farmhouse. He asked the captain why his men were making no effort to take the building. Sir, the Germans are in there shooting at us, the captain said. Now, when I read this, I thought to myself, you're in a war, dude. And you're, you sound like you're surprised that people are shooting at you. And I thought to myself, man, isn't that the church? Man, man, we're in a war here with Satan. I mean, he's already declared war on us. The Bible tells us that. And then we act surprised that we're, that, that we're, that we're under assault. We're acting surprised that, that divorce is everywhere. We're looking to act surprised that, that our children are, 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 are a situation they are. We are act surprised that our country's where it is. I mean, we... We're just like them. I can't believe it. They're shooting at us. Of course, you're in a war. I'll tell you what, said Coda, unbuckling two grenades from his jacket. I like this guy already. You and your men start shooting at them. To the body of Christ, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to be a target. Start shooting back. Start shooting back. 
Why do we have to sit there and take Satan's attacks? Start shooting back. You start shooting at them, he says. Then I'll take a squad of men, and you and your men watch carefully. I love this. I'll show you how to take a house with Germans in it. Coda led his squad around the hedge to get as close to the pot as possible to the house. Suddenly he gave a whoop and raced forward, the squad following, yelling like wild men. As they tossed grenades in the windows, uh, uh, Coda and another man kicked in the front door, tossed a couple grenades inside, waited for the explosions, then dashed into the house, screaming like madmen. The surviving Germans inside were streaming out the back door, running for their lives. Coda returned to the captain. You've seen how to take a house, said the general, still out of breath. Do you understand? Do you know how to do it now? One of the things that I have found in my life, when I was a young man and I was immature in my faith, I thought that I was the first one to deal with what I was dealing with. And what I realized as I've gotten older is that the battles that I was fighting as a young man were already being fought 20, 30, 40, 50, 1,000 years before I came on the scene. And there were guys who knew how to fight them. And they, the guys had already been in the battle, and they had already learned how to defeat Satan in these areas. And if I would have just asked, if I would have just followed their example, I would have been much more successful. Guys, I'm telling you, you're not fighting a single battle that hadn't been fought for 6,000 years of human history. And there are people in this church and in your life who have already learned how to do it. You got some Dutch codas in your life, all right? And you, you may be hunkered down, taking fire, not knowing what to do. Look to the people around you. Look to the older, more mature Christians in your life. Most of them know how to fight the battle that you're going through. And you need to ask and let them show you, let, be that let, let them be that example to you. We need people to show us how to fight. All right? Starts in our homes. Fathers, mothers, being the examples to your kids of how to beat Satan at his own game. Or do they see you capitulating, throwing in the towel, hunkering down? Two, we need leaders in the church to demonstrate courage. The most haunting, disturbing thing I discovered when starting Catalyst was this, almost 15 years ago, that no one described their pastors or elders as courageous. I asked 100 Christians to describe their pastor to me. That's all I said. Please just describe your pastor to me or, or elders to me. Heard a lot of great things, great teacher, great, uh, very kind, compassionate. Not one described as courageous. We need leaders in our church who aren't swayed by the current thing, the broken culture around us. We need leaders in our church who preach the gospel without fear of offending anyone but God. A lot of times, courage looks like recklessness. There's a big difference between recklessness and courage. Recklessness knows what it's against. Courage knows what it is for. And we need people with courage. And then third, when someone shows you how to take a farmhouse spiritually, when someone shows you the example, you have to be wise enough to follow their lead. That's something I see that's broken in the body of Christ. We have all these great examples and, and no one's following them. It's the second thing that Peter tells us, to submit to each other. 
1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. The second thing is about demoralized Christians and churches is a spirit of disobedience that permeates everything. All right? Uh, we did a series last year called Make Your Own Mistakes, Don't Make Mine. It was a series about the massive failures of the heroes of the Bible. They're there, so we wouldn't do the same things they did. It's available on our, our website and on, on our YouTube channel. If you want to go back and watch it, I recommend you do that. But it takes humility and a lack of arrogance to follow the examples of the people around you. It's okay, Americans, to find someone that does things right and imitate them. I know right now we are in such an anti-authority culture, and I get it, y'all. I get it. I am right there. Every day I have to fight my distrust of, what I, of, of people that are leading this, leading, leading this country. I, I get it. I get it. I, I really, really do. Our distrust of authority is at an all-time high right now, and I'm right there with you. But here's the thing. There are people that are worth following. There are. And we do ourselves a disservice by lumping all leaders and all authority into one category. I said, I've struggled with this my entire life. But now when I was a young man, and I was a young married, and I was a young father, I looked around at some older men, especially, that were excellent at being married and excellent at being fathers. I was in a Sunday school class with my new wife, um, and, uh, and there were a lot of people that were older than us that were better at being married than I was. And I watched them, and I analyzed them. Um, and there's, there's this one father I'll never forget. Uh, he had a daughter that was maybe five or six years old. And after our Sunday school class let out, the kids' Sunday school class would be let out, and the kids would come to the parents' classrooms, right? And I noticed consistently this dad, when the daughter came into the room, he was five or six years old, he would stop everything. If he was talking to somebody, he would stop. If someone was talking, he would say, hang on. And he gave his full attention to his daughter the second, time, second she ran in the room. And he goes, there's my girl. And she would run to him. His face lit up. And I thought to myself, okay, that's what a dad does when the daughter enters the room. That's what you do. I watched him. And I learned from that, and I made mental notes. Guys, it's okay to follow the examples of people that are better at it than we are. And in the church, we must have enough humility and enough grace and enough wisdom to see that there are people that are better at things than us and learn from them and absorb them so that we don't make their mistakes. Okay? Isn't it amazing that Peter, when writing to the church, talking about this spiritual battle going on, the first thing he does is say, leaders, lead, church, follow. Get your, get your relationships right. Let's have no disharmony or discord in the church. Let's get rid of the spirit of disobedience. Let's have good leaders. Let's have good followers. That's the first thing we've got to have. We're going to win this battle. He starts with the relationships in the church. He says, mature people, lead well and be the example. Younger people, follow the mature people. You have a church that's doing that. It's going to be hard to take that down. Okay, that there'll be no division in fighting. And then once, he, once everything's together, 
Then he moves on to the next one here in verse 8. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. We're supposed to throw all, all our anxiety at God because he loves you. It says, cast all your anxiety at him because he cares for you. Third thing we see in demoralized Christians and demoralized churches is tons of anxiety, worry. Tons of it. Anxiety is everywhere. Now, the Bible is constantly telling us not to live that way. Don't live in anxiety. Do not live in worry. Constantly telling us not to do that. Maybe it's because that's one of the hardest commands to follow. See, demoralized Christians and churches are anxious about everything. They worry about everything because they're not in constant contact with God. Satan has cut off the communication with, with God, and so now they're worrying about anything and everything. They worry about tomorrow. They worry about what might happen. Worry about what. Uh, uh, worry about life in general. And we aren't to live that way. Corey Ten Boom, who was a uh, concentration camp survivor from Nazi Germany, said this: "Worry does not empty tomorrow of sorrows. Worry empties today of strength." And those of you that are living in anxiety right now. You're not, your anxiety is not emptying tomorrow of your sorrows. It's emptying you today of your strength. I also like the way Peter instructs us here. He says to cast, to throw. The imagery here is of, you know, like a burning coat. Your coat is on fire, and you take it off and you throw it. That's the imagery we get here of our anxieties. He doesn't tell us to package it up in a nice little box and put it in a ribbon and hand it to Jesus when the time is right. No, it's throw, cast your anxiety. Throw it straight at him. Like, like if you're holding a live grenade and you throw it. Okay, that's okay. God doesn't get hurt by live grenades. He can handle it. Just like he can handle your, your, your anxieties. He can handle it all. Financial trouble? Throw that anxiety at him. Kid trouble, throw that anxiety at him. Chinese spy balloon trouble, <laughs> throw that at him, okay? Throw all that anxiety. By the way, the memes of that thing have been awesome. I, I, I think my favorite one was, was this one right here, that we've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. That, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my favorite one. I, I, I love it, you know? I, I, heard people, I've, I heard people saying, Hey, if it passes over me, I'm taking my rifle and shooting it down. Come on. That thing is 60,000 feet. That's 11 miles. Yeah, good luck with an 11-mile shot. Do straight up. Come on. You know, buddy, you're not going to do it. It's kind of like, okay, you get this news. Well, what do you expect me to do about it? I, I, I can't do anything about it. I mean, that, that's, that's the, the military's job. Well, but what if they're not doing their job? Well, so what? What, what am I supposed to do about it? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares. See, guys, anxiety is giving your time and your energy to things you can't do anything about. Wondering what people think about you. Wondering what might happen. Wondering how you might fail. You can't do a thing about that. And if you give your time and your energy to it, then you're not giving your time and your energy to the things that God says is important. Okay? Christians that are cut off from God give their time and attention to things that don't matter and they can't do anything about. And if Satan can keep his church focused on things that don't matter and they can't do anything about, then they will not win the lost. They will not disciple the committed. 
They will not get the, the faith done in their own homes. They will not do the things that Jesus wants us to do. See, anxieties, that's why, that's why Peter says, listen, you're doing spiritual warfare. Cast anxiety. Throw them at God. He can handle it. You can't. He can. And then the, and the, look how the, the verse ends, because he cares for you. I would imagine Christians living in anxiety and worry don't have forgotten that God cares about you. So when you throw your anxieties and you rid yourself of giving your time and attention to things you can't do anything about, then all of a sudden you realize God does care for you. I think it's either or. I think it's like cause and effect. You throw your anxieties at God, you realize he cares about you. If you think that God has forsaken you and you're living in anxiety, throw them. Like a burning coat, like a live grenade, or for some of you like a snake. Throw them. Get rid of them. And you find out that God cares for you. And Peter says this, the fourth thing. He says, be alert and resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that family believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Fourth thing we see in demoralized Christians and churches is a complacency and apathy. Not alert, not of sober mind. Right? That's why we're told to be alert and of sober mind, not complacent and uncaring. The Bible tells us Satan hunts like a lion. Like a lion. Anybody know how a lion hunts? It's very, very obvious how he hunts. He doesn't charge into the pack. He picks out the stragglers. The ones away from the pack. I saw this. This is great. I love this. If I'm a Christian but I don't need the church, was a photo. Who's the lion going after? Is he charging into the pack? No. He's going after. She's, she's going after. Correct. She. It's she because the male lions are lazy. They don't hunt at all. They sit there and roar and the women do all the work. It's a good thing the humans aren't like that. Uh, but seriously, that, that, that is... That is how a lion hunts. And if you think that you are any different, you're, just, you're deceiving yourselves. This past two weeks has been an illustration of the church at its best. We lost a friend two weeks ago. And the devastation that we all felt and continue to feel um, brought some amazing things. I have gotten... Several, those of you all that know uh, what, what, what's going on, we, I've gotten text after text after text from people at UK Hospital and friends who I don't believe are believers in Jesus Christ about how supportive, how amazing, how unbelievably kind you all were turning in a, a, a terrible situation into something that is bearable. Um, I, I got um, a, a text from, and, and that for some reason they give me the credit. I didn't do anything. Um, I just showed up. You all, on your own initiative, in your own, uh, I didn't send out some mass, say, hey, everybody go to UK hospital. You all just showed up. I, 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 didn't, I didn't do anything, and yet the UK staff, kept giving me credit for it. I'm like, guys, you don't understand. It's the church. It's not me. But there were three people in the, in, the, uh, in the nursing staff there, I found out later, that bought my book. 
because they thought, because they were so impressed with the church. And I'm like, you, you, I, this, this is not me. This is the church at its finest, lifting up its wounded and its, and, and its hurting people. Um, the, uh, just giving you guys a little bit of an update of what you all have done for the family. Um, the meal train is out through March now. Like, like you, you, if you were hoping to bring a meal to, our, to the family, you have to wait until March because it's completely so I have no idea what they're going to do with all the food, okay? I, I really don't, but y'all are, that, that's the way God works. Um, the fund that we set up, uh, as of like three days, I haven't checked it in like three or four days, was already uh, at $10,000. $11,000. It's at $11,000 that you all have, have blessed family with after, after losing the husband and father. And that was completely you all. That is completely the church at its best. And you all were such an amazing example of the love of Jesus Christ in this, in this instant, not, not just to the family, but to the unbelieving world that was watching. Believe me, they saw you. They saw your love. They saw your concern. They saw you standing together and bearing one another's burdens in that awful, awful week that we had. The funeral that we did on Wednesday, I've done lots of funerals, you all. And I've done lots of funerals in that place, and I have never seen them have to get extra seats because so many of you were there to bear the burdens of one another. That's why we are called to be the church because Satan hunts like a lion. He picks off the stragglers. He picks off the ones that are not part of the body. That's how he hunts. And the Bible tells us to resist him and when, in the book of James, when we resist the devil, what happens? Does he stay there? No, no, he flees, what the Bible says. And right now, Satan has, fl- has fl- flown, flown, he's fleeing. He's fleeing. Fled. He has fled. He is fleeing. He has fled. And he has flown. <laughs> because of you all standing together. I can tell you in 15 years, Catalyst will have its 15-year anniversary in April. In 15 years of pastoring this church, I do not think I have seen a stronger example of the love of Jesus Christ from a church than I have the last two weeks. You all are amazing. And I, 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 it's just amazing to see how you guys have responded. And I love seeing you guys do that unprompted from me simply because you are the kind of church that loves the people here. And you've made your love very, very, very tangible and evident. And the entire world, the entire community has seen it. And you guys have made the name of Jesus great this week. Well done, church. The fifth thing that Peter writes is we allow God to restore us, we allow God to restore you. First Peter five ten through eleven, and the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, He will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. God of grace will restore you when you have. If you are undergoing uh, attack right now. Understand, it's temporary. It won't last. If you are demoralized, if you are thinking, what's the point? If you are, uh, are, if you are wrestling with those kinds of things right now, understand that God will restore you. 
He will. We're to look for his restoration. Like the prodigal son's father, look for the return of his son. We're supposed to sit there and wait and watch for God to restore us is what it says here. So we allow God to restore us. And we don't fall to Satan's tactic of demoralization, trying to cut us off from God. We keep that strong. And, and you say, well, you said there were six things. I only saw five. Yeah, there's six things. The sixth thing is this. The sixth command is this. Keep praying and studying the Bible. Keep constant contact with God. Do not allow Satan to cut communication with your commander-in-chief. Do not do that. I was, um, I was talking with Ravi, our, uh, our, our uh, orphanage director uh, in India, uh, who's also doing a lot of mission work to unreached tribes. Uh, me and Adam and Rodney got to be a part of that back in August when we were there, uh, October when we were there. And we got to, we got to uh, see the work that he was doing. We, we went into some very dangerous situations. People had never heard the name of Jesus, uh, very primitive uh, uh, tribes that, have, that, that don't even have water and everything like that. Well, he, he sent me a message saying that he was in another one of the tribes and he, he had been warned by the people that there were people trying to kill him. If he preached again, they told him not to preach. His, his wife and his church and his elders were saying, come back home, you're in danger. Come back here, don't preach there anymore. And he said, I'm staying because Satan can't do anything to me. And I said, well, how do you know that? I said, missionaries and p- pastors get killed all the time. How do you know that you're not going to be the next one? And he said this. He said, because I was in prayer and God told me to keep preaching. And I said, well, I guess that settles it. I'll be in prayer for you for your safety. See, guys, had he not had communication with home base, with his commander-in-chief, he would have been uh, he could have been intimidated. He could have been uh, uh, swayed into abandoning the very thing that Jesus had for him to do. And there would be people who did not hear the name of Jesus that night because he would have been afraid. He would have been full of anxiety. He would have not listened to what Jesus had, had him to do. But instead, he went straight to prayer. He went straight to his commander-in-chief. What do you want me to do? I want you to preach. And that's what he did. And there have been thousands of people in his ministry that have come to Jesus because of his preaching. Guys, never, ever, ever stop communication with home base. That is a tactic of the enemy. If he can get you isolated and he can get you cut off from communication, then he can fill you with anxiety. He can fill you with, with all types of fear. He can, he can focus you on things that you don't need to be focusing on. He can fill you with fear of things that, may, that you have no control over. He can get you obsessing with things that, you have, that, that don't matter. And in the meantime, all the while neglecting the things that he wants you to do. Keep the communication line with God open. I had a uh, friend ask me, uh, Dave, what's more important, prayer or study of the word? And I said, well, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? It takes both. We pray our communication to God. Word speaks to us. Uh, Keeping those communication lines open is essential to defeating the fourth tactic of spiritual warfare. Guys, as your pastor, as your friend, I have never been more blessed by a church seeing the church be faithful to Scripture like I have these past two weeks. Um, How in the world 
people get through the things that we've had to get through without each other, I have no idea. And I want to, the only reason I tell you that is I want to tell you all to continue. Let our church have the reputation for going so far beyond the call of duty. Uh, let, let our church have the reputation for, for taking such good care of each other, our hurting and wounded people, that, uh, we're, that we're that example to the community. I, I have, I've just been beaming all week watching you all care for the wounded and the hurt and the devastated. Let's never forget that. Let's continue that and let's take that to the next level. You all are awesome. You all are a blessing. Um, congratulations to the people that got baptized today and your families. Uh, congratulations to the victories. Um, it's just amazing. You all, this has been, God has taken a devastating week and turned it into such a victory. And that's what he does. He does that in churches. He does that in our lives. And he does that. Uh, he's been doing that all over the world. Y'all are awesome. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye.